Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast titled Revolution Z. This is our 88th episode, and it is another in our Collective 20 sequence. Collective 20 is a group of writers offering content under the group name, a very unusual, perhaps even close to unique in the political realm, instance of collectivity. I am part of the group, but even if I wasn't, I would feel the work deserves attention, and thus the Revolution Z Collective 20 sequence. This episode deals with the current activist context and, in particular, the issue of how activism achieves change. I will essentially read the contribution authored by C20, that's what I call Collective 20, but I will also interject additional commentary of my own now and then. My hope is to inspire listeners to consider the claims C20 offers and augment or refine them as you deem necessary, and to, as well, be moved to let others know of the Collective 20 project, and I guess, as well, the Revolution Z podcast. In any event, C20 begins. The ongoing Black Lives Matter protests are beyond incredible. Pandemic rages, and yet week after week, people courageously persist. Duration, unprecedented. Intensity, amazing. It is inspiring, but what is the underlying logic? Where are the protests headed? Indeed, stepping back and broadening out, continue C20, what is the purpose of any activist protest? Set aside the tiny numbers of protesters engaged for fun or to meet people, not that there is anything wrong with such desires in a world like ours. The overwhelming desire of the protests, however, is of course to win change. But how? Put differently, why do activists think their actions about racism, about wars, about inequality, about global warming, about whatever, can win change? And, I interject, really, how many actually ask that question and arrive at answers as a condition for their participation in events? Or, how many, lacking answers, as a result, don't participate? C20 continues. Some might say winning change can occur due to activism raising new issues, causing new thoughts, engendering new views. And all that is certainly profoundly important. And all that can and does happen. It is certainly part of protest logic. But change the issues, thoughts, and views of whom? Social change in our ridiculously top-down society is regrettably, ultimately, a matter of those in power behaving other than they have in the past. But the dissent of people in the streets doesn't rationally convince those in power that their past thoughts, views, and choices should not be their future thoughts, views, and choices. It does that for some participants. It does that for some bystanders. And that matters hugely. But for elites who have to pull levers for change to occur, more often people in the streets tend to cause those in the suites, if they feel anything at all, to feel more strongly opposed to sort changes. And, in rare instances, when someone with the power required to impose a new policy does get woke, he or she then almost always gets removed, or, to avoid being removed, remains silent. But if activism doesn't rationally change power brokers' minds, then how does activism get them to pull levers that ensure changes? Answer, says C20, is that activism wins change by raising social costs, such that those who enact policies feel it is in their interest to make sought changes, because if they don't, the cost to them of ever-increasing activism will be even greater than the cost to them of succumbing to the demand for change. I interject. This means we are not reasoning with the decision-makers. We are literally threatening them, coercing them, by saying if you don't implement what we demand, you will pay for your choice. 
C20 continues, while it requires a clumsy bunch of words to describe, that logic is trivially simple, yet raises many important implications and some questions. And C20 continues by raising and addressing the questions. What social costs matter? What social costs actually pressure elites? How do we conduct our activism to best raise relevant social costs high enough to win change? And so C20 brings us to the heart of this discussion. How are the current widespread demonstrations and activism winning various changes? Why are elites giving in more than anyone would have predicted some weeks back? Hell's bells, why are sports talk shows spending more time discussing policing, even systemic racism, even tactics and solutions, than sports scores? Having raised questions, C20 moves on to offer some answers. Why are elites giving in? Demonstrations are raising social costs. How might demonstrations win still more change? Answer, they can raise costs still higher or raise new costs. But what are the costs that rallies, marches, civil disobedience, and for that matter, organizing outreach, webinars, and all manner of educationals raise? We can be sure it is not the financial cost of cleaning up after protest. That cost is marginal, manageable, and thus of zero social change consequence to the powers that be. It is not even the continuation of our activities without their growing. That too is marginal and manageable, and thus of little consequence. Imagine a recurring rally, for example, every week, even every other day. If the action never grows, it will at most be annoying. Stable, static opposition pretends going nowhere. The cost of opposition is precisely the danger of its continued growth. The cost of opposition is precisely the danger of a steady diversification and enlargement of focus. It is the future threat that matters, not recurring activity that doesn't grow. C20 continues. When elites are asked to do X, whatever X may be, they will do it at whatever cost doing it entails, only when they fear that not doing it will ultimately cost them more. And the fact that cost to their beloved business as usual is the only reason they will do what is sought is why they have the power. It is the job of power to persist in business as usual, unless business as usual is at risk. It is the job of power to defend business as usual, including when the best defense, because of the growing threat, the growing social cost, is concessions. And we are not talking dollar costs. They are typically minor, easily affordable. We are talking threatened loss of means of accruing wealth and threatened loss of power as evidenced by a trajectory of growing opposition that is threatening to grow still more. Elites give in to strikes when they fear not giving in will lead to workers demanding even more and winning even more. They give in on affirmative action and on anything at all when they fear the consequences of not giving in more than they fear the consequences of giving in. The cost of cleaning up after demonstrations barely registers enough to win anything at all. In fact, even large demonstrations, if they recur but don't grow, are no big deal. What matters, what constitutes social cost, growing social cost, to the eyes of the elites who have their hands in position to pull levers to meet demands, is steadily increasing numbers, steadily growing commitment, steadily growing incursions of their own overall operations, and especially a steadily enlarging focus and steadily diversifying demands that augur still more to come. I interject. What C20 is saying is not complex, but incredibly straightforward. Nonetheless, it is crucial to understand if we are to be strategic about our activist choices. C20 goes on. 
It follows that breaking lots of windows is not raising social costs unless it grows the movement, grows resistance, grows commitment, and diversifies demands. And the truth is, however, breaking windows rarely, if ever, has any such effects. It often, despite the hopes of practitioners, even does the reverse. And that's without even taking into account it's providing an excuse and justification for repression. Increasing the number of participants in actions, increasing their commitment as evidenced by their engaging in civil disobedience, and perhaps most critical, deepening and enlarging stated aims all convey increasing threats that in turn warrant meeting demands. I interject. C20 next provides a kind of advisory as to what activism needs to achieve. C20 says, the job of the rebel, resistor, radical, and revolutionary is to consider circumstances and undertake achievable activities best suited to winning desired gains and to simultaneously paving the way toward winning still more gains on the way to attaining transformed social relations. Enlarging support, growing awareness, nurturing commitment, and visibly demonstrating a threat of more of that to come. These are our tasks. I interject what anyone might ask, okay, fair enough, but what can do these things? And C20 on the same wavelength answers. It can include face-to-face -face discussion and organizing, collective educationals, rallies, marches, boycotts, and occupations. It can include creating organization and means of outreach. It can include, and indeed should include, engineering shifts in political power. Protests should not always remain at the level of asking elites to change. Our efforts should also create the conditions of a political shift by which the traditionally dispossessed, oppressed, and marginalized win greater and greater levels of power. We seek radical social transformation, says C20, but short of that, our actions should not only force elites to respond to our demands, they should also expand democracy and plant the seeds of a new future in the present. It is rare that trashing or violently engaging with police, other than for necessary self-defense, enlarges support, grows awareness, nurtures commitment, and visibly demonstrates a threat of more of that to come. And C20 concludes, raise social costs, don't stabilize them, don't reduce them, raise them. And I have to say, it is succinct, it is simple, there are no $10 words, no $5 words. But how many of our endeavors of all kinds, speaking or in action, creating a project or carrying it through, developing a whole campaign, or just canvassing people we know, joining a demonstration, a boycott, a strike, or writing a letter or article, or whatever else, do we assess in these terms? How strategic are we? To what degree are we doing what is needed to win today and be ready to win more tomorrow? Can we do better than we have done? And isn't that what must always be our agenda? At any rate, that said, I need to make a request. Do Revolution Z episodes have a possibility, when heard and even discussed, to raise awareness, to inspire involvement and commitment, to help orient activist aims and choices? If not, okay, my apologies, I am trying in these very trying times. But if yes, then you're spending just a few minutes telling others about Revolution Z, either directly or by email or by social media or by whatever means you have, can also help with those ends. I sincerely hope you will consider promoting this project a bit. Those who listen are currently averaging listening to nearly three episodes a week. This means that folks are not so much mainly keeping up as catching up by listening to older entries. It makes sense because each episode tries to be relatively timeless, addressing issues of vision and strategy that remain relevant however long passes. 
so people don't just listen to new ones, but to older ones as well. They do that via podcast hosts like Stitcher and Apple, via our host site, Buzzsprout, via Patreon, and via Znet, which also has instructions for accessing the others, plus a full archive, etc. And that folks are listening to old as well as new episodes each week is great. But what isn't so great is the number of people, all told, who are listening. For Revolution Z to have wider benefit, that number needs to grow. And so that is where those who are listening can help. Please consider doing so. And finally, material support via www.patreon.com slash revolutionz can make a major difference as well. At this point, I would ordinarily sign off. But this has been a short podcast, and I have something else that I would like to explore. So I'm going to keep going. What about evictions? I would like to understand something I find emergent, imminent, and in some ways incomprehensible. Just yesterday, I spoke with a friend who lives about 30 minutes outside San Francisco. He was busy packing up all manner of absolutely essential possessions, or at least what there was room for, putting them into the family car and waiting to hear if the alert to prepare to evacuate escalates to literally having to evacuate. Fires and their deadly smoke. So that family is living on the edge of having to run for what they hope would be only a few days, maybe a week, staying in a motel if they can find one, to then return. But what if fires persist longer? And more depressingly, what if the encroaching flames find where my friend would return to and burn it to the ground? I not only felt for my friend the stress, maybe the disaster, but it was a horrible image to consider for so many other Californians in the same situation. It is as if a large swath of our largest state is at war. The proximate enemy is fire, and the sickening and even deadly air quality that fire imposes. The fuel is global warming. The callous, cretinous, opposing general is Trump. Yet for many, their plight would no doubt register as just fire at fault. The whole mess just an accident of fate. Bad luck calling. So they would strive to survive, but would not place blame. Minutes after finishing my California call, Still agitated and distraught over its implications, I talked with another friend who lives on the other coast of the U.S. She told me that 50,000 Boston residents are in line for eviction in the fall. To me, this means that by mid-October, in Massachusetts, when the eviction moratorium runs out, and then once bureaucratic hurdles to eviction pass, if there is no real reprieve, some considerable percentage of those 50,000 residents may find themselves homeless. Heading toward cold, and then unbearably cold weather, they will either live in cars, or under bridges, or in hastily prepared, decrepit camps, or in motels that still have room for them, and whose jacked-up prices they can manage to pay for a time, or for the lucky ones, in the homes of friends or relatives, expanding the number directly hurt much more. Or, in some ways, perhaps best, maybe they will live in unoccupied homes that they occupy. And this will happen essentially all at once, except for the delays caused by backed-up court hearings and proceedings and such, different in different states, though many people, served a notice, may just vacate not knowing their rights. And so Boston will start to look like it is losing a war, and the unfolding torment will depress people, but I think it may also anger people. Now, in fact, there is remarkable organizing going on all over the country, and has been for years now, and especially since covid to fight landlord ills and, of course, to prevent and or deal with evictions. But still, extrapolate the Boston picture 
which has some of the most successful such organizing to be found anywhere, to even larger cities across the U.S., and into smaller towns and rural areas as well. And what have you got? Tens of millions threatened, and perhaps in time evicted. If somewhere those who are uprooted organize to resist, and that is already happening in many somewheres, or if they riot to resist, or if they loot to survive, those responses will spread. It will be a kind of showcase effect. First just one community, then just one city, then many cities with potentially massive unrest. Unless everywhere, desperate people worried about themselves and their kids, and with no eye at all on the possibilities of more collective approaches, succumb. From the perspective of folks reading this, but who are by the whims of chance not about to be homeless, the scene threatens to become mammoth dislocation, horrendous injustice, and hopefully escalating fight back. I see no need to elaborate that angle on things. I get that part. You get that part. Hopefully those still in their home residences will want to help the newly and long since homeless. Hopefully all will want to fight the injustice. From the point of view of those evicted, they will face enormous pain and loss with no obvious path of return. But they will be hit by eviction altogether, almost simultaneously. Some will no doubt feel that somehow it is their own fault, or just the fault of COVID, a natural disaster that one can only struggle individually to survive, not work to collectively correct. Courageous but confused, they will hunker down and try to make do. But I suspect that many, and perhaps a great many, even if at first only in places where ongoing organizing has prepared the means, will see that the fault is not theirs. They will know this is not some kind of warranted suffering that they have brought on themselves, nor is it just bad luck. They will know their plight is brutal injustice, but they will get angry. They too will try to make do, of course. But I suspect they will also lash out to try to win aid, and that when some do that, others will do it as well, and then maybe come together. So what about the landlords? What's in evictions for them? I think however despicable it may be, using the threat of eviction has a logic for them. It seeks to collect rent payments that might otherwise be withheld. Even doing a few evictions to make the threat of evicting real has a logic of sorts, callous and cruel, but calculatedly self-serving. But beyond that, I think there is not much in mass evictions for landlords, maybe nothing, and maybe even less than nothing. If they evict big time, they will lose tenants, and from where do they replace them? From nowhere that I can see. So to strike back at those unable to pay their rent, they will wind up with no one able to pay the rent. No gain in that. And the anger, even the hate they will face, that has to be some kind of cost. And more so the organized resistance they may arouse. Even for their dollar bill brain, in fact especially for their dollar bill brains, Organized resistance is a big cost to risk eliciting. I would therefore expect big landlords to now be blustering about evictions to scare up what payments they can, but simultaneously demanding that businesses reopen to rehire those out of work, and also demanding that governments support those out of work, meantime, so they have money to pay rent. And what about capital writ larger? What's in it for them? Again, I just don't see much gain for them in making huge numbers of people hugely mad while creating masses of dislocated people, kids uprooted, and on and on. People leaving for warmer climes from colder, living in camps, living along highways. This may all sound apocalyptic, exaggerated, but if millions are evicted, is it? 
And so I wonder, how does such a path forward increase profit-making potentials? How would the gatherings of angry families providing targets for COVID spread solve COVID? And with COVID unsolved, who benefits from a profit-making economy that is stalled or even in large part dying? And then there is, again, the anger, the disruption, and the very likely violence. Whether we get chaos or organized resistance, how could elites want either of those outcomes? What constituency would benefit from mass evictions? I guess maybe motel owners for a time, but really that can't be enough to push it through. Then again, how do the Washington powers that be see all this? What's in the mind of the red-headed tyrant? I would think even government officials would see mass evictions as a giant chaotic cauldron of business disruption, COVID spread, and potential mass resistance. I would think they too would have nothing to gain by letting that mixture fester and explode, and would therefore want to forestall it. Unless, that is, some of them literally want chaos. Unless some of them literally want social breakdown. Unless some of them want to plant their knee on the neck of the resulting dissent and disruption, and in their dreams rise above it, entrenched as authorities in command. I just don't see, writ broadly and largely, who else has an interest in even allowing, much less pursuing, mass evictions. So to me, perhaps due to not understanding and thus not seeing the flaw in the simple reasoning above, I can't see the powers that be letting mass evictions proceed unless they literally want chaotic, violent social breakdown that they can then call ugly and can then rally against and try to crush, all to win an election. Or I suppose maybe they just haven't got a clue, or are entirely caught up in habits that don't fit this moment, and in internal squabbles and the like, but I find myself doubting that. So maybe I am entirely misreading this unfolding nightmare, but I think in the next few weeks we will learn something about just how far into decay and dissolution Trump is willing to travel to come out on top. And while witnessing it, we better try to organize to fight back. The complex crisis choice that we face isn't to demonstrate and build means to demonstrate even more, and then more, or to beat Trump at the polls. It is to do both. Beating Trump is part of building to demonstrate more and even more. I can say what I would ideally love to see from my lonely apartment isolation. How about a national campaign held until two simple demands are met? One, no evictions until unemployment is down to 4% or less, and then and thereafter, in any event, no evictions of the unemployed. And two, a cancellation of rent payments since COVID, and for that same duration, subsidies for small household rent properties, and a shift of mortgage payments to the end of their payment period, with no greater payments due at any time for all withheld payments. Yes, it would be hard to pull off. But it would also be a winning hand, especially if each successive month more people joined in withholding rent and mortgage payments, including, for example, cops, and if each month adds new demands regarding maintenance, safety, etc. Every month it goes on, big landlords lose more revenue. Every month it goes on, we get better organized and seek still more. They pay, we grow. Anything remotely like that would have to begin where there are organizers and organizations to pose it, galvanize it, and work for it. But once rolling in a few cities, then maybe in smaller towns and rural areas, and in southern and midwestern cities that lacked activist infrastructure, infrastructure would spring up. It is a better picture than depression-level homelessness from coast to coast. 
And that said, this is Michael Albert, signing off for now. Until next time, for Revolution Z.